Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman. I invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech. And before I started investing, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. So really excited to kick off season two of the podcast. I have a very special episode today. Excited to welcome to the show today, Ray Yusuf, co-founder and CEO of Paxful. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. It's my pleasure and honor to be here, sir. So Ray, I know you're in Estonia right now. How is the current situation impacting startups in you know the crypto space and obviously Paxful more specifically? Yeah, so we were one of the first uh, here in Estonia to institute a mandatory work from home. Estonia has most of our engineers and talent. Uh, we're about 250 people around the world across four offices and we have mandatory work from home from all of them. And we did that not because we wanted to panic anyone, but because we value health more than anything else. The health of our people is everything. Our business is people. It's people-powered. So we didn't have enough information, so we chose to be on the safe side. And all our people are working from home right now, which brings in tremendous challenges. And any leader or CEO understands how hard it is to make that work. But... We've actually uh, seen an improvement in our communications since then. We have a global really, audience. yeah, absolutely it's amazing. We have a global hand, all hands every week. I'm making a personal like diary video to my company every Monday and Friday, and it's working out tremendously well. We're having a lot more of these very kind of uh, not really secret meetings, but meetings where like we get people who are really interested in doing something. You know, it can be anyone. It can be someone that just joined the company in our support. But if they're really interested in product and they're talking with the customer and they have, you know, the lowdown on what's happening in the street, they can hang out with the co-founders right here in the office and we can make things happen. And that's really what's been filling me with so much joy. Yeah, because we're moving so much faster on product. It's awesome, actually. I mean, you can you can literally turn lemons into lemonade. You know, you always have to find the silver lining in anything, but. Over-communicate people, like find new ways of communication. It is a product in the company in and of itself. You mentioned you decided to impose a mandatory work from home for employees. That's pretty unique. Uh, it is, yeah. We decided to do that. You know, a lot of other companies, they started to do that, but we just didn't have enough information. And then some of the reports that were coming out in the beginning were really concerning us. So we said, hey, whatever 
drop in productivity we'll take is fine. We don't want anyone getting sick. These are our people here. We do value them more than anything else. So we bit right. the there and we're waiting for more information and more reports to come in. And that's all I'll say. I'm no expert on this situation. I don't even watch the news. I've completely tuned that out. I'm encourage everyone else to do that too. Focus on your work, focus on your families, focus on your health. Try to find time to train and work out in this. Do not just sit in front of the news. It's the worst thing you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk in a second more about obviously what you guys are doing. But just curious, how has that situation impacted your business? Have you seen like a significant drop in terms of people who go on Paxful uh, to purchase Bitcoin or curious about the impact of this crisis? Yeah, so so far, um, uh, as far as like last week ago, we saw a 10% drop in volume. And uh, we're starting to see it kind of come back up right now. So it's the truth is, is that, you know, people are suffering majorly because of this. And the un- uncertainty is the biggest issue. But peer-to-peer, peer-to-peer crypto is probably the least affected industry that I've, that I've known about right now from the people that I've talked to. So thank goodness for that. Yeah, I feel like in a way it was meant for times like this. That's why we have, you know, peer-to-peer crypto, at least in my mind. Absolutely. And in fact, this is something that, you know, I was telling people in our global all hands just yesterday. We are now embarking, we're entering into the age, the golden age of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. People are going to finally start understanding what this thing is actually good for. Because up until now, there's been no medium-term solution or case for bitcoin right it's just a short-term case of gray markets and speculation which is toxic and then there's the long-term case like hey if all the u.s dollar collapses uh then bitcoin will become more valuable and a store of value and that's it there's no medium-term case the medium-term case is peer-to-peer finance it is people using bitcoin not as a form of investment or a form of speculation or to buy weed online, it's you people are using it as a way to convert, transport, and utilize money, access any financial network anywhere in the world. And ultimately, that's what Paxful allows. Paxful is a people-powered marketplace for money transfers for anyone, anywhere, at any time. And the way we can remove all boundaries is because Paxful doesn't own any bank accounts. Paxful doesn't have any PayPal or Amazon accounts. It's all of our users, just like Uber doesn't have any cars. Because we're people-powered, we can literally access every financial network in the world, meaning someone in Africa or Latin America or India that doesn't even have a bank account, never had a bank account, might not even have an ID, if they can access a smartphone and they can buy Bitcoin on Paxful, which you can do with any one of 360 payment methods, they can at that point sell that Bitcoin and access any financial network on the planet. They could access, uh, they could ha- make a PayPal deposit in the UK with their Bitcoin. They could make an Alipay, pay an Alipay bill in Shenzhen, China. They could do a cash payment in Cambodia. All they have to do is sell their Bitcoin to someone and then ask them to pay them back by doing something else, sending money in another form anywhere else. That's what Paxful ultimately is at the end of the day. It's a universal translator and transporter of money. And the world has needed this more desperately than anything else. Because 
the more you stay on the ground in this business, the more you see that there are immense financial problems and limitations in the world that we in the West cannot even imagine. Yeah, uh, there's a big opportunity definitely in emerging markets. But to be clear, Paxful is, is purely peer-to-peer, right? You're only buying it from only through a counterparty, basically. It's not someone goes, like I guess the Coinbase example. No, we're not a brokerage. In right. a model, Coinbase, TransferWise, they could all be vendors, peers on Paxful and service other people if they chose to. Right, like market makers, basically. Yeah, but we ourselves on Paxful do not do not do that. Although, if you if you do become a vendor on Paxful, I usually I use Paxful every day just as a user. For example, I just sent some money to my wife's European bank account because I can't send money from my Bank of America account in New York. I can't send money out of the country unless I'm physically in the branch in New York. Do you believe that? One of the biggest banks in the country. Why? Those are just their BS laws. There's, you know, our financial system is broken with all these limits, barriers, incompetences, and they really just don't care about the user anymore. And that's where peer-to-peer finance comes to the rescue. If you are blocked from doing something, which is perfectly legal, I just want to send some money to my wife, to her European bank account. I don't have a bank account in Europe. What do I do? I go on to Paxful, take my Bitcoin, sell it to a guy in Germany and say, hey, just send some money from your European bank account to this one right here. Happens same day. It's nearly instant. Easy. And what about, um, you know, KYC and AML requirements? Absolutely. So this is a, a huge area for innovation. And uh, my call is out to all the brilliant people in this cryptocurrency space. If you're looking for a problem to solve, then you should look at KYC. Because KYC is a massive problem, not just in crypto, but in, in the, all of fintech in the entire world. I'll give you some examples. And you only start to understand these examples when you actually begin to do this, when you actually begin the process of trying to KYC people, especially in emerging markets. We currently use Jumio, who is an excellent company, which, by the way, is being severely affected by this corona incident since they're PCI compliant and they can't have employees working from home. They're suffering now, and Airbnb is, is seeing KYC delays as well. We are trying to compensate. Anyway, that's just mm-hmm. a side note. But Jumio is yeah. an awesome company. They do a great job uh, in the West, meaning in America and Europe. But when it comes to non-Latin characters like Chinese or Cambodian or whatever it might be, Russian, they do a very poor job. And in some places like Nigeria, especially pretty much anywhere in Africa, they, they don't work at all. Because Nigeria is, uh, there are five national IDs in Nigeria. Five. They only recognize one. In, in Kenya, there's no such thing as proof of address. And that's why people in Africa, when you, say KY, when you say KYC to them, they freak out. Not because they don't want to KYC. They're happy to give you their biometric fingerprint. They'll give you a blood sample if it just allows them to access you know, <laughs> money, honestly. Yeah. In Nigeria, you have to do a biometric fingerprint scan just to get a SIM card. That's that's the law. Wow. So Africans, they'll happily KYC, but the problem is the KYC processes of these Western companies don't work for Africa. So when they hear KYC, they think, oh, I can't do, I can't get an account here. So what we're trying to do and what we've been successful in doing is actually localizing 
KYC right now so that we can KYC anyone on the planet. We began this process almost a year ago, well before anyone else in the peer-to-peer space. Paxful has the best compliance record in the entire industry. For example, our rate of uh, dark market sendouts is, I think, 11 times lower than local Bitcoins. It's a fraction of a percent. And we are, um, we're, we're the only peer-to-peer site that's ranked medium, soon to be low. All others are ranked very highly as a risk on chain analysis. We have a top-notch compliance and AML team in New York. And we're going for all of our state licenses. And the reason we have to do this is because we want to protect our users. I'm sure you heard about all these local Bitcoin vendors going to jail because they didn't have MTLs. So we're trying to work with regulators as best we can for two purposes. One, to protect our users. And two, so that we can actually onboard the emerging world. Because anyone that's tried to actually onboard Africa and serve them, give them access to financial services, you know, try getting a bank account and telling people, oh, yeah, we serve Nigeria. (laughs) They're going to slam the door in your face. (laughs) This is what happens. And our mission from the beginning has been to serve the emerging world, especially Africa. So you guys are focused mostly on these markets and less on uh, more Western markets? We're focused on helping the people that need it most. To do that, it's not just enough to serve those people. We have to connect them with the bank. We have to connect the bank and underbanked to the bank. So our biggest markets are uh, Nigeria, Ghana, America. Well, Nigeria first and America second, and they're kind of fighting neck and neck, and then Ghana third, India, and then the rest of Africa. Got it. Can you share some metrics, just trying to understand the size of the operation, and maybe if you can talk about the growth of Paxful over the years? I think you started the company five years ago, right? Yeah, we started roughly five years ago in New York City, um, when me and my co-founder were both basically homeless for a while and now it's went from two people now we're 250 humans in four offices around the world soon to be quite a few more offices and Paxful began with you know three very simple values Um, number one you know my co-founder and I we really pride ourselves on staying connected to the streets you know talking to real people the, the reason Paxful is so successful is because we're connected to the street. Because I don't know if you remember, um, well, there was an incident that happened a little while back, and it was the first case of mainstream adoption into Bitcoin. The fir- very first case of mainstream people, humans, desperately looking to get some Bitcoin, just five bucks worth of Bitcoin. And what happened? Everyone in the space ignored them. Every single one, everyone ignored them. These were unbanked peoples that were just trying to get a little bit of Bitcoin and no one could help them. Coinbase couldn't help them because they didn't have a bank account. All the other brokerages and exchanges just ignored them because who wanted to spend two hours of customer support walking a newbie through through buying and getting and using their first Bitcoin? No one did that except me and Artur. We actually stayed on the phone with these people, listening to them, guiding them through every step of the product, step by step. And that's where we figured out how to serve these folks. You know, we redid our entire website, our entire product to serve them. We didn't ignore them when they needed us. We picked up the phone and we spoke to them. I spoke to thousands of people on the phone, guiding them through getting and using their very first Bitcoin. So the use case is mostly for basically unbanked people who struggle to get access to the legacy financial system. Well, it's, it's interesting you asked that. So this journey has taught us what the actual true use cases of Bitcoin are. 
And I really want to give thanks and gratitude to the peoples of Africa, especially Nigeria and Ghana, for their immense business acumen and really teaching us everything we know. So the journey of every new technology always starts with the first use case, which is gray markets, right? Silk Road, all that stuff. We're way beyond that right now. And that measure of Bitcoin's volume continues to decrease year after year. Paxwell has the the lowest rate in the industry of any black market sendouts, and we work very hard to control that. The second big use case for cryptocurrency, for Bitcoin, is uh, speculation. So this is as toxic, if not even more toxic, than gray markets. You know, you know, one guy buying weed online, okay, whatever, that's maybe not the best thing in the world, but people gaming and manipulating the market to make profit and dumping money on it, destroying retail investors, that's absolutely evil. There's a reason why every government and religion in the world bans you know, this high speculation because it's extremely toxic. So 95%, uh, I'd say, or 90% of all the volume in cryptocurrency is now basically speculation, big Wall Street traders, whales, bots, etc., playing their pump and dump schemes. Unfortunate, even worse, 95% of that exchange volume is fake. So where does that leave us? You know, that's why none of the institutional money has come into Bitcoin. But they're just looking at those two use cases like, oh, this is the use case for Bitcoin. That's it. And the long term use case. Oh, yeah. When the dollar collapses, Bitcoin will be worth a lot. Uh, no, that's that's not solid. Right. You're not going to get any big hedge funds jumping into Bitcoin with just a short and long term uh, case for it. There has to be the medium term case. And that's what peer to peer finance is. I, for example, have several bank accounts. But to access a European bank account to send money to my wife, I'll use Paxful. I'll use Bitcoin and peer-to-peer current finance because it works. I can access any financial world. If I wanted to pay an Alipay bill, I'll use Paxful because I don't have an Alipay account. So I am banked, but not banked everywhere in the world. And honestly, like our definition of what the unbanked is, you know, there's 7 billion humans in the planet. I would say that 6 billion of those humans are underbanked. And I would even include myself in there, right? I should be able to send money to Europe from my bank account in New York without actually physically being there, right? But I can't. So by my definition, I, I am underbanked. And there's people that are overbanked that use Paxful. One fellow came up to me and he was a guy that sold expensive caviar. And I was like, okay, how can I help you? And he's like, well, every time I get a $50,000 deposit into my bank account, the bank just goes nuts and asks for all these documents and this and that, and I can't take it anymore. He uses Paxful now to invoice his clients so he doesn't have to go through all that. So that's an example of a very banked person, perhaps too banked, turning to peer-to-peer finance. So the five, there's seven total use cases. I went over the first two, uh, gray markets and speculation, and there's five others. Right? There's payments, there's remittance, there's wealth preservation, there's e-commerce, and the last and magical use case is social good. And Paxful has been making grounds on each one of those use cases, and we'll be launching products on each one of those use cases. As far as the seventh use case goes, social good, Paxful is currently completing our third campus school in Kenya. We built two more in Rwanda, and our overarching plan for... Uh, really just to validate our existence as a company is to build a hundred schools across Africa and the emerging world. And this is something that we are doing ourselves. We're not just, you know, throwing money at a non-for-profit. That doesn't work. That's never worked. We believe that a for-profit company 
should have social good as a central pillar of its mission if it's really going to affect change. That's a really interesting perspective. Doesn't that take away, though, at least to some degree, from your focus on your business? If you actually go and build that, these schools, which obviously is a very noble cause and so forth, but if you actually are the ones doing it, I just wonder kind of how you as the CEO are thinking about, you know, resource allocation. Yeah, it's a great question. So we were blessed to find a fellow named Yusuf Nusri. His name is also Yusuf. And he runs a, a non-for-profit called Zamzam Water. So we've allied with them and are working together on all these school projects. You know, this was our, our idea together to do this and build it. And they're taking care of the on-the-ground work of actually constructing the schools. It's okay to utilize non-for-profits, but you should have a direct relationship with them and be actively executing on the ground with them. Don't just throw money at them and let them you know, take care of things, right? Like this guy, this Zamzam Water, they're amazing. 100% of everything you give them goes to actually helping people. 100%, not 5% like every other NGO out there. So we're blessed to have amazing people inside this company, outside of this company that we're working with, and nothing can replace that. It all comes back down to the people. Interesting. And why do you think that social good is such an important pillar in building a for-profit business? You know, this is a great, another great question. I mean, when I was telling people, you know, three years ago, oh, yeah, I want to build 100 schools throughout Africa and the emerging world, everyone thought I was crazy except for my co-founder. He was like, all right, man, let's try it. Uh, <laughs> all, right, all right. So, you know, where did that crazy idea even come from? Um, I don't have any fancy business case to present for that. I, I still don't. Um, I can only tell you my story. You know, uh, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, I actually went to New Orleans on the very first day I, anyone could get into the city. I managed to get in. And to make a long story short, but an awesome story, uh, I helped rebuild the first school to open up in that city. It was a New Orleans Cathedral Academy, and uh, I did it with five nuns. Uh, it was a harrowing adventure. Uh, it was I met some real heroes along the way that helped us do it. But when we rebuilt that school, when it opened up that first day, the police and fire department actually could were started coming back into the city because they had a place to put their children. And without police and fire departments, nothing in the city happened. So for the first time in my life, I felt I really made a difference in the world. You know, I had a previous, you know, I was young at that point. I was like 25 and I had a successful business. And I was doing great, but I didn't really feel fulfilled. After building that school, it really changed my life. And it showed me the power of education and what it can actually do as the bedrock of civilization. So I said, hey, man, if we're going to build this company, what's going to make us different from all these other blockchain, Bitcoin, Yahoo's, and they're only just out for money? Like, do I really just want to be a part of you know this, this, this money hustle that's happening right now? The reason my co-founder and I connected over Bitcoin was because we believed it could make a real difference. It could help the little guy. It could have real impact for the people that needed it most. And to me, that's what validates every corporation's existence. It might be corny. It might be insane. But that's how I feel. And we're putting our money where our mouth is. And thank God we're bootstrapped because if I told this to some VCs, they would have kicked me out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. But I love the cause and I think to your point, right, in today's world, when you have a company that's so mission-driven, I think it reflects on everything, right? I think it also reflects on recruiting and the caliber of people that 
you know, you can record. That's a great point. And I just want to put this out there because you know, when I when I was proposing this to everyone, they asked me, what can we possibly get out of this? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe we'll get some good press or whatever. But the real benefit of this, by far, more than anything else that's paid for itself 10x is the fact that it's brought us the absolute best people on the planet. They're not coming to us for money. They're coming to us because we, they want to make a real difference. And they're so proud of the fact that we're building schools. I didn't see that coming. But that you can that is priceless. And, I, and I'm putting this out there because I want everyone else to start copying us and doing the same thing. <laughs> right. And you're going to get better and better talent that'll pay for self 10x. So... Straight from the horse's mouth, guys. Let's do it together. It's it's going to pay for itself 10x over at least. Amazing. I want to come back to a couple of things you said that I thought were really interesting, Ray. The first was, so you talked about, you know, using Paxful to move money around across borders. When you talk about that, do you mean Bitcoin? Because obviously I thought about stable coins. And if so, like, how do you overcome the volatility issue? It's a great question. So what we're beginning to see right now is that in peer-to-peer finance, Bitcoin is just a building block of this. And, and uh, you know, we did a campus tour in Africa last year, and we learned a lot about how Bitcoin is perceived on the ground. Like in Africa, it has a very bad reputation. Because if you ask a room full of students, and I did, how many of you have lost money have lost money in a Bitcoin, you know, in a multi-level marketing scam that asked for money in Bitcoin. Half the room raised their hands. How many of you here have lost money in a in a cryptocurrency mining uh, operation? Again, almost half the room raised their hands. How many of you here know someone or have been uh, like lost money day trading cryptocurrency? Half the room raised their hands. Everyone had lost money with Bitcoin. They either been scammed. Or they just, you know, just lost all their money. So, you know, when you mention Bitcoin, there's a lot of re-education to be done. So, and we're doing it anyway because we love Bitcoin. Me and my co-founder are Bitcoin optimalists. We only support Bitcoin on our platform for a reason. You know, VCs, investors that wanted, they always, why aren't you supporting all these other tokens and, and, and coins and ICO? And we're like, mm, no, because if we're really going to saturate you know, if we're going to saturate economies with Bitcoin and get them into cryptocurrency in a way that is meaningful and driven by real use cases, you can't you say, okay, here's this, you know, awesome thing called Bitcoin. Oh, by the way, there's 67,000 other tokens here. No, it's just going to steal away the momentum. We might make more money, but it's not going to serve our principal mission. What about stable coins, though, in particular for the use cases that you described earlier? Well, for wealth preservation, stable coins definitely, uh, they're a much better value. Like Tether does a much better value of serving the average Venezuelan than Bitcoin. The Venezuelans, if you actually talk to the real man or lady on the street, they don't care about Bitcoin. They want U.S. dollars. They want stability. The reason they turn to Bitcoin is they don't have anywhere else to turn. They can't get U.S. dollar accounts. So they just use Bitcoin as a means to an end. And that's really the killer app of Bitcoin. It's an awesome liquid clearing layer for any kind of money in the world. So you can take your Bitcoin and sell it and turn it into a gift card or a PayPal deposit or an Alipay deposit or cash or a bank transfer in Sweden. Anything can become anything else. And as the more invisible Bitcoin is in that, the more seamless it is so your grandmother can use it, 
the better it will be and the more successful we will be as an industry. I guess I wonder if in your vision, probably not tomorrow, but let's say, you know, fast forward, I don't know, five years from now, like, do you see people go and buy a cup of coffee using Bitcoin? Uh, no, not five years from now, maybe. Well, look, it, it all depends. Um, I think that'll definitely happen across the world in the next 10 to 20 years. That's the long-term case for Bitcoin, right? Like, hey, we want to buy some coffee with it. We want to use it as a, a hedge of value when the dollar collapses and the, and the zombie apocalypse is upon us. That's a long-term thing. But what has to happen is the midterm. Like, who cares if you can't buy a cup of coffee with it? Well, you know what's even better than that is I can send money from here to, I don't know, a friend or a relative in Africa right to their mobile wallet that they're using. It gets instantly transferred seamlessly. They get it within seconds. And in fact, it doesn't even cost me a penny. In fact, I, I did a presentation on live Kenyan TV where I sent the lady that was interviewing me, I sent her... Um, sent her uh, 25 euros worth of Kenyan shillings via Paxful, and she got it as M-Pesa, and she got like 1% more. She got like $26 worth of, 26 euros worth of Kenyan shillings onto her M-Pesa account. And the reason that was is because, Ken, you know, Bitcoin is, is has a premium in Kenya. So I sold some Bitcoin to the guy who was happy to pay me 1% more. So think about that. Not only is it instant, not only is it free, but I actually made a profit off of doing that. When the girl saw that, she was blown away. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like magic, right? To your point. It really is. You can send it. Yeah, it's like, I, I remember the first few times I used it, I was just, I was shocked. Because you're so used to, or at least I was, to the way the, you know, the financial system works right now, right? In the fiat world that i don't know at some point you just take it as a you know as a fact of life right it's like when i send money across borders it's going to take a few days and during that time i probably wouldn't know where the money is right because sometimes like you call the bank it's like hey like what's going on and they even are not sure because you have all these intermediaries involved exactly and when i used bitcoin i'm like wow you know <laughs> a few seconds it just moves and at any given point like you can see the status of it it's just it's like magic. It really is. And that's like the magic of, of uh, a people-powered marketplace is that you can put Bitcoin in and on the other side, it can pop up as anything else, as a Xbox gift card, as a... Yeah. So sounds like, so so if I go back to my question, it sounds like you your vision for Bitcoin, at least in the short and medium term, is more as a settlement layer. That's its killer app. The sooner that we accept that, the faster that we will move. The mission ahead of us, it's its the most difficult mission in the entire business world. I don't think there's been something more difficult than offering financial services to the entirety of the world in the past hundred years. Like what could be greater than this? It is an immense challenge. We need the best people in the world and we need a mature outlook, right? That those roots that we all came from, like I'm a libertarian, you know, I believe in privacy and all of that. We have to make a lot of... Uh, we have to make a lot of compromises right now. Like, for example, we want to reach everyone in Africa with cryptocurrency, give them financial freedom, give them access to every financial network on the planet. We have to balance that with being an American company that's dealing with regulators in the United States. As crazy as that is, we're actually doing it. 
We are actually doing it. Yeah. What's next for you, Ray? What's on your roadmap? Like, what are you building next? So we're all about products. We're a product-driven company, and every company in crypto should be because Bitcoin itself cannot be the product. There have to be products built around that. It is technology. So we know what the use cases are. We are building specific products for each of those use cases. I'll give you an example. E-commerce, right? It's a huge use case. $5 billion in payments happen a day through e-commerce. What are the problems that exist in e-commerce right now? Well, there's two main problems. Number one, all the Western uh, merchants like Amazon, you know, eBay, Newegg, etc., they want to access a new base of customers in the emerging world, but they can't collect money from them. Because even if those folks do have a Visa and MasterCard, they can't use it. For example, in Nigeria, if you get a bank card and you have a lot of money in your bank account, they limit your bank card to 100 bucks you can buy online with it a month. Imagine if all the plastic in your wallet was limited to 100 bucks. So those companies can't access a lot of that business. And because of fraud and chargebacks, they don't even cater to those markets at all. On the flip side, a lot of the merchants in those emerging markets that have making great goods in Africa, Latin America, et cetera, they want to sell their stuff to people in the West. Uh, their, their you know immigrant communities in the West, in America and Europe. They can't do it because they can't get a Visa and MasterCard merchant account in the countries where they're at. They have to often fly to New York City, open up a bank account there just to get a merchant account. So we can solve problems for both those people. How? We have a product that we're working on right now called Pay with Paxful. It's a button. It's like PayPal checkout. You can Any merchant can put it on their, their website and shopping cart, and it will allow anyone anywhere in the world to pay for their stuff using any form of payment that Paxful supports, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's a bank transfer, Western Union, a gift card, cash to the guy next door. They can buy something from anyone. And there won't be any chargebacks because Bitcoin is the clearing layer and it is irreversible. So with a product like that, we solve problems for both sides. Hmm, that's really interesting. How do you drive consumer adoption? Do you spend a lot of on marketing or how do you get users? No, we don't spend much money on marketing uh, at all. Uh, what we do is we focus on customer support. You know, it's all about the customer experience. When you give people great support and a great customer experience, they become your biggest advocates. They really do. And you'll see this. You know, you look at companies that have great support, like uh, Kraken, for example. They have awesome customer support. People that use Kraken will never leave. Why? Because they're financial services and they're providing an awesome service. And so do we. Let's not forget, we are in the financial services industry. It's about the service, right? This is something the banks have forgotten. In fact, you know, they're not, they don't care about the service they're giving you. They're apathetic towards their customers, if anything. They already have the biggest buildings in every city in the world. Why should they care? Customer service, that's a really novel approach in the financial services industry. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I don't know many banks that have good customer service. Exactly. That is the key to crypto. It's about products and it's about support. And, and that's where any company crypto ranks very, very weakly. Can people actually pick up the phone and call you guys if they have any issues? Uh, no, we don't do phone support right now. Uh, we use uh, email and live chat support and that works far better because... 
you know, phone support only works if you have localized people, uh, localized support people in those countries, right? So, for example, if you're, you know, if you're the customer is Nigeria, the um, I don't like the word customer, and I certainly don't like the word user. I like just person, people. If the person is in Nigeria, you know, they can't be talking to someone in the Philippines. They have to be talking to one of their own people. Right. So what we're doing now is we're going to launch all these uh, local, regional, Paxful offices focused on giving a great customer experience to people. So that's probably going to happen towards the end of this year. But that's that's an extremely difficult undertaking because it requires a holographic support structure, which uh, requires immense training, especially in, in, in finance. Right. Immense challenges there. So we talked a lot about Bitcoin so far. Uh... What's your take on Ethereum and the DeFi space? Well, I'm actually a big fan of Ethereum. Uh, I know most maximalists don't say that. They like calling Vitalik a scammer, which is, you know, just nonsense. If you think about what Ethereum is right now, it's actually the clearing layer for all of the stable coins, right? Which actually makes it, in many ways, a lot more valuable than Bitcoin in in the way it's serving, you know, the very simple use cases of wealth preservation. So I think we're gonna, as long as Ethereum is clearing a lot of those stablecoin transactions. That really is its killer app. So I think we're going to see Ethereum come into its own a lot more, especially as, you know, with all this geopolitical turmoil and global uncertainty, wealth preservation use case will come into its own in a much bigger way and stablecoins will come to the fore. That's going to happen. Okay, you surprised me. I thought you were going to be negative about that. No, I'm not thinking about anything. I mean, this <laughs> infighting and this, this, this very catty attitude that people in the space have is so toxic. We are so done with that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. In my mind also, at least my take is I think I view Bitcoin and Ethereum as being complementary rather than, you know, one or the other. I think they actually serve pretty different use cases. So... And in Bitcoin's case, we talked about kind of the short and medium term goal for it. Do you buy in the long term, kind of when you think about the long term, do you buy the store of value narrative for Bitcoin? I think there's definitely going to be situations in the future. But by the future, I mean anywhere from like five to 10 years where fiat currency is going to take a massive hit. And we're already seeing the Fed say printing five trillion dollars in a week basically unlimited amounts of dollars right crazy it is crazy um but like financial markets are crazy meaning they're not logical so when you hear something like that i'm like oh wow you know bitcoin is not going to go up but the u.s dollar is going to collapse and the price of bitcoin will be rising in accordance to that right that's what makes sense especially because every other uh currency every other central bank in the world will print their currency to match what the Fed is doing. That's just the trend you always see, right? But it the inflation doesn't really show up until all that fake money that they created goes through all the layers, right? And sometimes, most of the times, almost all of the time, they give it to their super rich fat cat friends who either hoard it or spend it on things that never really trickle down to the common person. So who knows when that layer of inflation will actually be felt in the Bitcoin price. So we're living in insane times and our financial markets are not sane. They don't, you know, it's logic doesn't work most of the time. So I would encourage people 
not to think logically about that because it's impossible to predict, really. Right. So when you think about Bitcoin's long-term play, uh, do you buy into that um, store of value narrative or you're more focused on the short-term application? on the medium term, which is period of uh-huh. period. I'm 100% focused there. The long term is going to happen in like a decade, right? So, And it's not going to happen unless we take care of the medium term. So we need everyone to forget about all the speculative stuff and day trading Bitcoin, you know, to go get that Lambo money. That's toxic. The whole buying coffee with Bitcoin, like, I mean, who cares? I can buy coffee with cash. That's not a problem that anyone has, that they have to buy coffee with Bitcoin. We have to focus on the problems that need solving. And in the midterm, there are so many problems that need solving. So I would encourage everyone, while they're sitting at home right now, to uh, embrace Paxful's three values. Number one, stay connected to the street, right? Go and find someone like who's from an emerging country, whether you're a next door neighbor who came over from India, Nigeria, and just ask him about the financial challenges that he faces sending money back home or the financial challenges that his family back home faces in trying to send money out of the country, trying to pay for bills, trying to run a business, Find out about those problems, connect to the street, get that information. And then once you've found that, you think about a specific use case and you build something for these people. And that's Paxful's second virtue is build for people, right? Because when you actually create products for real people based on real problems that exist, that's when you open up the door to being a real hero. And that's Paxful's third value is just be a hero, man. We are in the hero business every single day in the world. In this business, something happens. Look at Lebanon. They had a huge deflationary crisis that happened three months ago when I think $35 billion left the economy and the the Lebanese lira is backed by U.S. dollars. It's pegged to the U.S. dollar. So all of a sudden, the banks had no money to give their people. What do they do? Huge situation, right? Those people need help. There's so many opportunities for us now to be heroes, but we have to focus on what actually counts. And that means the midterm solution. Let's focus everything on peer-to-peer finance. And speaking of heroes, the most important question of this interview, you used to be an MMA fighter, right? Yeah, I wasn't very good. I'm too nice of a guy. (laughs) (laughs) What's more difficult, being an MMA fighter or driving Bitcoin adoption? Oh, driving Bitcoin adoption, a hundred. <laughs> yeah. You got to be a psycho. I mean, getting insane <laughs> compared to this. Uh, I don't know. Getting into that thing seems pretty, pretty challenging to me. <laughs> it's its own challenge. You have to face yourself, right? You're basically at a, at a war with yourself, controlling your own fear. But like when you are trying to drive, Bitcoin adoption, look at the powers that you're facing. You're facing the entirety of the world's media that has made slander the name of Bitcoin. You're facing an army of scammers around the world that have scammed so many innocent people like OneCoin and all this, and you have to fight against the damage and and all the filth that they've caused. And then you have to go in and the, the banks and all those guys, they're the least of your concerns, right? Because then you've got like the fraud. If you're going to go into emerging markets, they're rife with fraud. Like, and you can't blame those people, honestly, because they're in a hard situation. Like, if you look at my Twitter timeline, you will see like literally like 100 messages a day of people yelling at me, oh, Ray Paxwell, you're a scammer. You took my Bitcoin. 
what is this? This is a guy that tried to sell the same gift card code 27 times in a row. And we finally caught him and he, and he's, you know, accusing us of scamming him after he tried to commit, you know, 27 counts of, you know, grand theft, right? There are huge challenges in this space and in peer to peer finance, the challenges are 10 X bigger. So I went through just three of them, but those three, each one of them is, is, is just a Herculean task in and of itself. Stack them all up together. And honestly, the banks are the least of our problems. And I mean that from the heart, really. <laughs> yeah, I have no doubt it's a very challenging position to be in. It, it's like and... trying to fight Mike Tyson, prime Muhammad Ali, and I don't know, prime Jack Dempsey all at the same time. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? You're going to get your ass whooped man, in a second. And if you don't, that's the real hell, man. The thing is, though, I think it's, um, it's the pioneers, right, in the space that are, you know, really paving the way for the rest of us, right? It's like once once you pave that way and you make progress, it's it's definitely much easier for others to then follow and build on top of that. There's a great use case. So, like, what Paxful did in Nigeria, we connected Nigeria to China and flooded Nigeria with Bitcoin. This is, you know, when, when we first went to Africa, like it was almost four years ago, and I saw the potential of the place, I was like, wow, this is amazing. So we went hard. We went all in. And when we got to Nigeria, the price of Bitcoin was like 20% over market. Now it's market price or even under market price sometimes. Why? Because we connected the Chinese to uh, Nigeria in a way where at least $50 billion a week was going into Nigeria as Bitcoin. And because of that, now you see all these other companies, including other peer-to-peer -peer players, including Binance, all going into Nigeria and Western Africa. Why? Because the market exists there now. So now it's the biggest economy in Africa, and it was also the most challenging because of you know all the challenges with uh, fraud, etc. But we knew we had to do it there first because Nigeria is the lion of Africa, and you're not going to free the rest of Africa unless you get to Nigeria first. So now everyone is following the suit. The next challenge is to go and do that in every single country in Africa. So we'll see if they're brave enough to dip their toes in first, but we're going in first no matter what. We're already there. I'm going to be really curious to see how that unfolds. One of the things I'm also really interested in uh, getting your perspective on, Ray, is, you know, typically when I have guests come on the show, I ask them about their fundraising process. You took a different approach, which I think is really interesting, and basically bootstrapped not only Paxful, but also previous businesses you've worked on. Can you talk about why that is and also how you've been successful in doing that? I think many entrepreneurs would you know, ideally like to just build a profitable business and take it from there. Few actually are successful in pursuing that. I'm so curious if you have some insights. Um, into why you decided to pursue that path and also how you've been successful in doing it. Yeah, so I've had 11 failures in a row. My first two startups were successful and you know, I bought a mother a house a brownstone for my mother in Manhattan. I was, you know, I said, "All right, I'm I'm kind of done with this whole tech thing." My first startup was a ringtone startup. It was like the they called it the Napster of ringtones. It was right when Napster went down, so I had to go head-to-head -head with all the music labels and record publishers for years, and it was a nightmare. 
So I was very happy to get out of the game, buy my mother a house, came back. She got a divorce, wanted to buy her a new house. I thought, all right, I'll do it again. I'm, I'm you know, some, I'm some kind of superstar. No, I was just a punk. I failed 11 times in a row. God really humbled me. And uh, now I have packs full. So I'm very thankful for the lessons that each one of those startups taught me. But the one lesson I learned over and over again from all of them, and this is the place where all startups usually, almost all startups fail. They build something that no one really wants, right? This is the main issue. So yeah. people come up with ideas from their head. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if this existed? Okay, but who really needs that? Is that solving a problem for someone? Is it solving a problem for you? Is it solving a problem for you that you would pay someone else to have access to? If the answer is no, then it's not worth doing, right? This is the truth. You have to start with a problem, and that means being connected to the street. Like, you have to connect to the person. It can be a man or person on the street. It can be a business, right? Like, what are the problems that businesses have, right? You have to be connected to the street, and, and very few people do that. And I, I notice this with creative people. They... They have a certain arrogance about them. And I'm a creative person too. And I was like this too before I, I really got into this value. You must humble yourself and you must connect and stay connected to the street. It doesn't matter if you're talking to a homeless person. That person will have something to teach you. And if you can do that, you're going to find the right problems to solve. And then you're going to build things for actual human beings that actually need this. If you can get that, just get that down, humble your ego and go about that path, you will make money. You will start to build things that people want and it hopefully it'll be profitable, right? Because it's very once you have a revenue stream coming in, people want this. It's, you know, cutting corners and making things more efficient, scaling up, well, that's a lot easier than finding something that actually works. So once mm -hmm. you do that and you have that revenue stream coming in, that's it, man. Like that's the key. You can, you can choose to just uh, build it slowly and grow it from there. You don't have to take money from anyone, but I should uh, tell you this one uncomfortable truth. Uh, one of the reasons I never raised money is it's just, I just didn't like VCs. Uh, I didn't trust them. All my dealings with them, it just always felt wrong I felt I, you know, they they just wanted to take everything, and I, I, you know, I would lose control of the business. You know, you have to be very, very hands on in your business. And again, that's about staying connected to the street. The reason companies get so big and fail, or they just lose their grip, is because they lose their connection to the street. The bigger the company gets, the more money they make, the more people they have, they completely lose their connection to the street, and then you have to go to research firms and pay them to to slosh together some empty data. Because everyone in that company is too afraid to actually talk to a real human being on the street. So embody that first Paxful virtue. Stay connected to the street. That's the key to everything in this business. Yeah. No, man, you didn't meet the right investors. <laughs> so there are some really excellent investors out there who are all about, you know, helping you build a really big business and hopefully support you. Once you get the right investor, if you can find them, you know, you can accelerate the business quite a bit, right? Like even if you build a profitable business, you know, it starts to become profitable early on, which is very rare, major accomplishment in itself. But even if you do, right, like say you go and you raise a few million dollars from investors, that can accelerate the progress that you're making quite a bit. Just wondering if you consider that at some point or 
you just felt uncomfortable and you just knew that wasn't the right path for you? Well, it wasn't the right path for me but at the time, but the truth is I've never had a company as big as Paxful. I never had a mission as big as Paxful. So let's talk mm-hmm. about mission is actually going to come to. So let's say five years from now, one of our goals is we actually want to go to those villages in Africa. And we want to give people that have no ID an ID. We want to do the things that even nation states aren't willing to do. We want to go there, give them ID, tag their latitude and longitude so they'll have a proof of address. And then like, you know, somehow give them a credit rating score truly make these invisible people, these 6 billion invisible humans visible, give them a real place in the system. To do that, you know, as, as hard as we work over here, you're not going to be able to do that bootstrapped. You need significant infusions of cash. So, you know, I'm not anti-VC. I know we have to work with these folks, you know, if we're going to really accomplish our mission because our our milestones, our goals are absolutely massive. You know, we want to do things that even nation states can't do or don't want to do so yes i'm open to that i understand it's a different game right now we're attempting to do what has never been done or even attempted in the history of business and a a little company and yes 250 people is still little compared to this has no chance of doing that without significant aid investments and all kinds of great things especially people it's all about the people that we get it's remarkable that you got to 250 people with no outside funding. I mean, it's it's very rare. It's a gift from God. What it is, bro. There's no. <laughs> yeah. Really. No, it's it's uh, it's amazing, and I love how ambitious your uh, vision is. Ray, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing such great insights. Really enjoyed the conversation, and appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for your awesome questions, Tomer. To anyone listening to this, sky's the limit. I know times are really hard right now and pretty crazy, but in times like this is when real champions, real empires, real success stories are formed. You know, my first startup, I started right after the dot-com crash, and then 9-11 happened, and I still kept going, and I still kept building it. And even when the 2008 bubble showed up, I was still working, you know, I came back and I went through my 11 failures and I kept going. This, what's happening right now, as dark as it is, as uncertain as it is, is all just a test for some truly great ones to emerge. And I'm hoping that at least one person listening today is one of those people. Please drop me a line, Ray Paxwell on Twitter, and say hi. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain BC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.